Hey ladies, welcome to WTF, Women Talking Frankly, a running conversation with your hosts, Kyle and Candace. And you, about issues facing women, such as health, hormones, our looks, our libido, life, and anything in between. We promise to dig deep and get into it each episode. Welcome. We're so glad you joined us today. WTF listeners, this is Candace Birch and Kyle McAvoy, and we are, as promised, recording our second interview with Dr. Kenneth Stevenson. Um, her the the last time we talked to her was a couple months ago, I think. We've had so many stalls and starts, but it was a fantastic interview about her book Awakening Athena. Um, and the exploration of the female archetype that that goddess of wisdom, war, and self-healing, how that how that translates to our own ability to be resilient and to restore our health and to be healthy overall. Kenna, as you remember, and her bio will be on in our show notes, is a board certified in family medicine. She's she's worked in the clinic, in the field, in movie tents, in uh, remote areas of Guatemala and New Zealand. She's doing something very exciting with dream workshops very soon. I want her to tell us about. So her career is incredible. And not only has she written this wonderful book, Awakening Athena, but she's also done some of the most important landmark peer-reviewed research in the field of women's reproductive medicine, specifically about um, the use of bioidentical or physiologic hormone replacement as opposed to synthetic HRT and how that can benefit women. Her her study, her choice study is an incredibly important piece of research that we've been needing for ages. And we're going to ask her about that too. So Kenna, welcome. <laughs> so happy to have you back. Thank you, Kyle and Candace. Happy New Year. And it's wonderful to be back on WTF. Yeah. We- Thank you for joining us again. We're doing this via Zoom. So audience, please bear with us. We are, we are now our own recording engineers. So let's see how this goes. Yes. Let's see. I think, yeah, we are on our own. We're sailing, but we can do it. Mm-hmm. And we'd love your feedback. So I was going to start, Kenna, with, you know, I remember the first time I met you was actually you, was me in the audience watching you up there on the stage and and practically open-mouthed was I because you were such a firebrand. You were such a, um, you know, just raising the cudgels for women and talking about how we can move out of this place where we're not getting the care we need and we're not getting what we, you know, what helps us get balanced in these years of pre and perimenopause. And I was just, I, I fell in love with you. I thought, my God, this woman is my hero. And it turns out you are, and at that time, one of the pioneers in this movement. But I, I wanted to ask you, was it always so when you started out as an MD in your early years of practice, did, did your approach to women's reproductive health always emphasize natural choices and bioidentical hormones, or did you evolve like so many of the functional medicine practitioners that are now savvy in this world of natural approaches to menopause medicine? Well, I would say my approach to women's health has not changed. It is holistic. I practice the art and science of medicine, and I question authorities. And throughout my medical education, I questioned authorities. 
What they told me was not concordant with what I observed in the patient. For instance, hot flashes. My medical education taught me that hot flashes were made up. They were psychological figment, figments of women's imaginations. They were not true events. This was part of the curriculum? My God. Can I laugh here? <laughs> Insert. Yeah, we, we have to laugh to keep from crying. Right. Because I observed in patients hot flashes, and I heard from them, those with severe hot flashes, how it impacted their quality of life. They had to take changes of clothes to work. They had to take hair products and makeup to work. They had to find places to cool off, you know, inside the bank or inside the hospital or the restaurant. And it, it was miserable for them. And yet they were, they were dismissed when they brought these concerns to physicians. And so I, I questioned, I, I all, always questioned. And one of the pivotal events for me, I think, was one of my professors, and I will say his name because we wrote opposing pieces on menopausal women, hmm. the pros and cons of hormone replacement therapy. He wrote the pro, I wrote the con. I was a little intimidated about going up against Dr. Joseph Goldzier, a highly esteemed obstetrician, gynecologist, a big dog researcher in the University of Texas Health System. Mm -hmm. but I felt so passionate about the fact that his message was not grounded in science. His message was grounded in opinion, and he was doing harm in his teaching. His teaching was basically this. If she has a uterus, give her Primpro, and if she doesn't, give her Primrin. And in doing so, you are protecting this woman against hip, hip fractures. You're protecting her against cardiovascular disease. You're protecting her against dementia. I did not see any science that supported that. In fact, I saw the opposite. And so I wrote the opposing piece. In, in that journal, and that would have been uh, right after I finished my residency training in the 1990s. And that was the beginning of my battle. So do you, do you think of it as a, as a worthy battle? It's a battle that you picked, or has it also had its struggles for you as a practitioner in the face of having to fly in the face of these powerful um, sorts of doctors as you describe this fellow? Well, I feel so strongly about patients and giving them the care that they deserve, giving them the best possible care and giving them the best possible chance to have the best possible life, whatever their age and whatever their stage, that I will not be intimidated. Mm -hmm. I will not back down. And yes, it's, it has been a difficult career. There have been moments. Um, I refused to prescribe Primarin for a patient once, and I was called up to the hallowed halls of administration <laughs> on the top floor. And I was told that I would write that prescription for that patient. Mm -hmm. And what happened? What was the, what was the uh, end on that one? Well, 
at that time, I was doing clinical research in bioidentical hormones, and those were ongoing studies. And I, I needed to stay in the fight. I needed to stay in the race to get those study results. And so I wrote a 30-day prescription, no refills. And I said she had to find another physician because I would not prescribe a poison. It is truly Faustian. Gold's ear is, is Faustian. The, the, whole, the whole shebang is. And I have an excellent YouTube video on this. It's called Skin in the Game, the truth about hormone replacement therapy. And it's about money and it's about power. And it's not about science. And in your book, in Awakening Athena, you talk about that whole, that, um, putting us down, putting women down, guiding us down the primrose path. Tell us a little bit about why you are, um, I mean, obviously we, this is our conversation every day, but for women that are listening that don't maybe understand the dangers of Premarin and the synthetic progestin that has been prescribed along with it for so long as PremPro, um, what you were describing, this doctor telling women the benefits were, are actually the absolute opposite. Those are the risk factors. But, but tell us more about the kinds of implications that these synthetic hormones carry and why you're so, so adamant that you will not prescribe them. Because there are certainly doctors that still are prescribing them, even though I think, in our opinion, they should be banned. Well, they do have a black box warning but they are still heavily prescribed, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And I am a deep prescriber, not a prescriber. And I find myself stopping these drugs even today, even years after the Women's Health Initiative. The Women's Health Initiative was the largest study, the largest clinical research study to ever look at outcomes and health risks and health benefits related to Primarin, a hormone derived from pregnant mares, pregnant horses, mm -hmm. and Provera, or PrimPro, a combination of Primarin and Provera. Provera is a synthetic progestin. And these hormones are given and prescribed to perimenopausal and menopausal women, oftentimes to help with symptoms of menopause. And the Women's Health Initiative asked the question, are we doing harm? Are we doing good? Are we preventing cardiovascular disease? Are we preventing fractures? Are we preventing strokes and dementia by prescribing these medications? And both arms of the Women's Health Initiative had to be stopped suddenly. They had to be stopped abruptly because there was more harm than good. There were more heart attacks, more breast cancers, more venous thromboembolism, that's a blood clot to the brain, a blood clot to the lung, a blood clot in the leg, more dementia. And there, it was true, there was a benefit in that there were fewer fractures mm -hmm. uh, and, and less colon cancer cases, yeah. but the, the risk far outweighed the benefits. Mm -hmm. So, I have a question for you, Kenna, as a provider. I think what I remember from the WHI study that was, I think it was published in 2002, that what was interesting was that the Premarin um, arm alone did not have an increased risk of breast cancer risk. And everybody's always ascribed estrogen or, you know, to the increased risk, but the estrogen, I mean, I'm sorry, the uh, Premarin Pro arm did have an increased risk. Can you comment on that? 
Well, I think that um, there, if they had continued the permanent-only arm uh, for a few more years, they would have seen breast cancer cases. Um, mm-hmm. So I think it's just the timeline. I think there's a synergy with the Primarin and the progestin together mm-hmm. that affects the oncogenes, that affects the cancer risk. And so that's why it was kind of accelerated in women getting PrimPro. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But if you look at the Million Women Study and the E3 and cohort, which are long-term studies in Europe, you definitely see breast cancer risk with estrogen, synthetic estrogen or animal-derived estrogen only. You definitely see that risk over time. So yeah. I, was, I was noticing when I was reviewing for this podcast that your study, I think, took place in 2004, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the WHI study findings were published in 2002, but obviously either you either reacted very quickly or your study was already in process. Can you describe your study when you started it and what, you, what the main findings were that you uh, extrapolated from your study? Yes, I'm happy to. I think that the first arm of the Women's Health Initiative was abruptly stopped in 2002, and then the second arm was stopped in 2004. And right. I, at that time, I was part of the University of Texas Health System. I was the medical director of women's health, and I was already researching bioidentical hormones because there was a void, especially in the U.S. literature, about these hormones and about their effects over time. And so we wanted to answer that question. At that, our first study had to do with progesterone, transdermal, bioidentical, plant-derived progesterone given to postmenopausal women. This was our first study, and uh, we we did this study in 2003. And um, because when you do hormone testing of women, you will find almost all of them have low progesterone, and so. The most common prescription that you will write with this model of care, which I call the hormone restoration model of care, mm-hmm. is progesterone. And at that time, Dr. Golzier and the Northern American Menopause Society and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, mm-hmm. they were they their statement was that plant-derived progesterone should be thought to have the same risks as synthetic progestin, mm. as Provera. And I knew this wasn't right, but there was nothing in the literature to refute it. And so we did our first study. And in that study, we looked at clotting factors that relate to blood clot and cardiovascular disease risk. We looked at inflammatory factors and immune signaling factors that relate to cancer risk. We also looked at at symptoms. Uh, Did the patient feel better or not feel better? And we did the gold standard research study. It was a placebo-controlled, randomized, crossover study. So at the beginning of the study, women could not take anything, uh, any, any medication at all. Then they were given either placebo transdermal cream or they were given progesterone, a 20 milligram progesterone dose. I deliberately use 20 milligrams because throughout the world, women have access to a 20 milligram progesterone dose. You can get that on Amazon. There are several companies, the botanical companies that offer this product. 
And I wanted to use that product to answer the question because I knew women could directly access it without a prescription. And I want to help as many women as possible in the perimenopausal and menopausal transition. And so you're mimicking it. That's a physiologic dose to mimic natural. Absolutely. Yeah. So we use the 20 milligram and then, uh, we stopped, then there was a four week washout period. So they didn't get any medicines at all. And then they were, they were crossed over. So if they got placebo at the beginning, they got progesterone at the end. If they got progesterone at the beginning, they got placebo at the end. So we we could be certain. And I have an MD uh, with research honors and my area of interest was pharmacology. So in looking at the pharmacokinetics and the pharmacology, we could be certain that we were measuring the effects of the progesterone on all of these different factors. And we discovered that in strong contradiction to what was being said by Dr. Golzier, by the North American Menopause Society, Mm -hmm. by the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, by the FDA, by all of them, by the whole bunch, (laughs) that transdermal progesterone did not increase clotting risk. It did not have adverse effects on immune signaling pathway. It did not increase inflammatory factors. And it did, it did relieve menopause-related symptoms. Mm -hmm. It did not have any adverse effects. Also, it lowered nocturnal cortisol levels. We know that cortisol is a stress hormone. We all need cortisol to function, but many women that are highly stressed, they have elevated nocturnal cortisol and that elevated nocturnal, that elevated bedtime cortisol over time is related to increased cancer risk. And we found that when the postmenopausal women were using the progesterone as compared to placebo, their nocturnal cortisol decreased. So this was another unanticipated finding, another benefit of this model of care of this bioidentical hormone. So that was our first study. What was that study called exactly? And where where does one find it? that the choice that was published. It was published in, uh, I believe, Blood Journal. Okay. And uh, the, it was called the Choice Study, wasn't that? No, no, we we haven't talked about oh, that yet. Okay. This was pre- progesterone only. Okay. So that's um, like, Ken, uh, Ken, when you were talking about this, I read that about the nighttime cortisol levels. And my question for you was. How long were these women on the transdermal progesterone, and how quickly did you see the, uh, the response of the nighttime cortisol dropping? Yeah, so this was this was the um, prospective randomized placebo control study. So they they were on either placebo or progesterone for four weeks. So we saw the cortisol changes. Uh, Within four weeks. That's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. And so, yes. then, and then when you flip those two groups. Okay, here's the study. I'm sorry to interrupt, but here's here's the title. Uh, this is Stevenson, Kenna, Carol Price, Pierre Neunschwander. Title: Topical progesterone cream does not increase thrombotic and inflammatory factors in postmenopausal women, and that was published in Blood. B-L-O-O-D, in 2004. Blood is a peer-reviewed 
mainstream journal. We're not publishing in alternative medicine journals because I don't practice alternative medicine. I practice medicine. I mm. practice the art and science of medicine. And I use botanicals for my patients when indicated. And so we had to prove, guess what? A plant-derived progesterone is safe. In the face of all this prescribing with synthetic Probera, synthetic progestin, which is proven again and again to not be safe. We did it. How was that study received by your peers? Uh, okay, I had, um, uh, they told me that rubbing progesterone cream is just like putting Vaseline on. It was, <laughs> it was just all placebo in the patient's minds. Now, when women are having severe hot flashes, I don't think it's just in their mind that they go away. Mm -mm. Um, it, the, you know, we had tangible, direct biomarker proven evidence of what was happening when they were on placebo and when they were, when they were on the progesterone. Uh, so mm -hmm. I would say it was not received well. No, no. But um, so then, Kenna, obviously, as a physician, you've also prescribed oral progesterone, and I'm talking about bioidentical progesterone. Why, is, why do you think that the common thought is amongst physicians that that is safer than the transdermal? Because I, I, I've, I've come up against this as well. And I know it took a long time for researchers to go in and look at the endometrial effect of transdermal progesterone. I know Dr. Zava was involved in that study. But why is there always a poo-poo on the transdermal? But yeah, well, okay. <laughs> well, I... I I don't want to spend too much time on that because I want to get to the choice study, which was okay. the most exciting study. But I will, I will say, um, uh, and I know that we have mainly a lay audience out there, Kyle. So I think the bias, first of all, there is a bias by physicians due to their medical education. And we've already talked about the medical education and that it is often opinion, not science-based. Right. And doctors are comfortable with blood tests. They like to use drugs that they can then measure in the blood and measure levels in the blood. And they're very attracted to this. I don't know why. I think we look at the patient, right? Doesn't the patient tell us what the effects are? So when you give oral progesterone, then you can do a serum test, a blood test, and you can see elevations. When you give transdermal hormones, because they go through the skin and they are gradually metabolized by the, by the body, you don't see spikes in serum testing. Serum testing only looks at uh, the low, I'm sorry, it only looks at mid and high analyte ranges. It doesn't look at low analyte ranges. We're trying to, to go natural. We're trying to reproduce help patients with what their ovaries are no longer making, or maybe they've had their ovaries removed. And so we're trying to deliver as naturally as possible the exactly. hormone back to the body so that it can be metabolized and utilized. And when you give transdermally, you don't see spikes in the blood. And so the physicians are stymied by this. They think, well, that's just like rubbing Vaseline on because when we do a blood test, there's no spike in a progesterone level. If they did a saliva test, they would see it because saliva measures 
uh, a more of a it's more of a reflection of what's going on in the tissue. It doesn't get into the sex hormone binding globulins and offloading them. And you know, I'm, this is this podcast isn't about serum or saliva. Sure. But I trained at the NIH. I trained at the National Institutes of Health. I was with Dr. Gordon Cutler at the Maternal. Uh, Child and Health Institute. I was with Dr. Bruce Weintraub at the NIDDK, and we use saliva testing in clinical investigation. Now, saliva testing is commercially available, and it is the best way to measure sex steroid and steroid hormones. Yet many doctors don't know that because they didn't go to the NIH like I did and train. They just went to you know their run-of-the-mill medical school and had their professor who was possibly taught by someone like Dr. Golzier. And then they're just regurgitating the misinformation. It's not science-based. Our audience needs to hear this from you, Ken. We've talked about this many times in our podcast, how we advocate, WTF, we advocate saliva testing for exactly the same reasons that you're saying. And we've had Dr. Zava on, who has fought the uphill battle for years and done this, done this, the research and all of us have supported, you know, it, it's it's there. The 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 evidence is is clear. So talking about transdermal, let's move into the landmark choice study that you that you was your masterpiece research, which did deal with the use of transdermal hormone therapy and compounded bioidentical transdermal hormone therapy, looking at cardiovascular biomarkers, quality of life measures, immune factors, and health outcomes in perimenopausal and postmenopausal women. That is, um, and, and all of the hormones you used in that study, as I understand it, were, were transdermal because of this, I would assume, this mimicking, you know, the best way to deliver hormones is through the skin and into the target tissues rather than having it go through the intestine and liver. So that's what you you did with the choice study. Tell us how you conceived it. Was it the next natural step from the first study you did? And 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 what specifically were the objectives here? Yes. Yeah, so I'll back that up just a little bit to say that in my clinical practice, and I don't think anybody can dispute this. What we see oftentimes in women's health is a perimenopausal transition, a perimenopausal downward health spiral. So perimenopause starts about a decade before menopause. The average age of menopause is 50. So for women in their late 30s or early 40s, the perimenopausal transition begins. And when it happens, there are changes. Usually the first change is a drop in progesterone, and that causes a mismatch and imbalance between progesterone and estrogen. And progesterone and estrogen have opposing effects in many tissues, especially in the brain. And so oftentimes those women may develop mood changes, and they may be depressed, uh, they may be diagnosed with depression and given an antidepressant. When they're on the antidepressant, they gain weight. They have uh, food cravings. Um, so their triglycerides elevate. And this is also part of the natural perimenopausal tra transition is a lipid flip, an elevation in triglycerides, a lowering of HDL cholesterol, and an elevation of LDL cholesterol. So they're on an antidepressant. They're then put on a statin. 
they then have um, joint pain, muscle pain, so they're put on a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory prescribed medication or uh, in the 90s and 2000, an opioid. Uh, then they may have trouble sleeping, so they're put on a sleep hypnotic agent. Then they develop insulin resistance because of the weight gain and their, their poor diet and their sedentary lifestyle, so they're given an oral hypoglycemic agent. Uh, then they have um, heartburn, reflux, so they're given a proton pump inhibitor. So here they are. I've, I've illustrated six, sometimes also an anti-anxiety medicine. So here we are, seven. Oh, yeah. And low libido. In one decade. <laughs> yeah. So in, yeah, and low So in, in, in less than a decade, as they head into menopause, they're now on seven prescribed drugs. They feel worse than they've ever felt in their lives. And they weigh more than they weighed when they were pregnant with their last child. Yeah. And these women are, are downtrodden. As they go to the physician after physician, they're told, uh, you need this drug, you need that drug. Oh, it's just in your head. Uh, go to the psychiatrist again. And I knew that wasn't the truth. I knew there was a better way to help these women. And so we designed the CHOICE study. Catch the women in that perimenopausal transition and give them what their body needs, which, as we talked about before, is usually progesterone. As they get into menopause, some will also need estrogen. And then some, as they get into their 60s and 70s, they need some androgens. They need DHEA. They need testosterone. But in the hormone restoration model of care, the patient is evaluated, and then she is given, in a transdermal dose, the hormones in which she is deficient in a physiological dose, not in a supra-pharmacological dose, which Mm -hmm. is what pellets bring, which is what oral dosing brings. Thank you. my re- my work was inspired by tr- by men that dedicated their entire careers to answering these important questions about perimenopause and menopause and animal models of menopause. The first is Dr. Kent Hermsmeyer. Dr. Hermsmeyer yeah. determined that cardiovascular disease uh, in in perimenopause and menopause could be prevented by giving transdermal progesterone in animal models. And he proved this multiple times. And then Dr. Donald Stein at Emory University, looking at neurological models of disease, looking at stroke models and trauma models, showed, especially in the brain tissue, how important it was to have sufficient progesterone and those luteal phase ratios of progesterone and estrogen that... if the if the animal model of menopause, if the female had this mid to late luteal phase ratio, she was protected. She was neuroprotected. She was cardiovascularly protected. And so that was my target range. When we measured hormone levels in the patients in the choice study, we we wanted that that luteal phase. That was that was our target. The physiology of that. Because we want to protect women from what? From cardiovascular disease, from the uh, insulin resistance that leads to diabetes, yes. of course, from pain, from sleep disruption, from dysphoric mood, depression, anxiety, weight gain, um, the lipid flip. Could we do all that? So 
I, I based, I was inspired by the choice study by Dr. Kent Hermsmeyer's work and Dr. Donald Stein's work. And so my idea was, let's do it. Let's take women between the ages of 35 and 70. And yes, that was a battle to include 70 year old women that had never, ever been given hormones before. The Human Subjects Committee thought that was outrageous and highly dangerous. But when you look at the lifespan of women, heck, they're living into 80, 90, 100. What are they supposed to do? They go through menopause at 50 and then have no hormones for the next decades? That hasn't We had to answer this question. And so we recruited women uh, between the ages of 35 and 70, and um, we followed them for three years. And we looked at immune signaling, having to do with cancer risk, with dementia risk. Uh, We looked at inflammatory pathways, having to do with cardiovascular disease, stroke risk, cancer risk. We looked at hemostatic factors related to cardiovascular disease. And we looked at outcomes. We did look at what was going on in the uterus with the endometrial lining, because that's another fear that's out there of uh, invoking hyperplasia of the uterus and then increasing cancer risk. We also looked at, at uh, symptoms and outcomes. Um, we, we had, uh, uh, oh, well, do you, do you want me to talk about recruitment for the study? Well, can I just clarify one thing? For oh, yeah. If we have a lay audience. I just want to clarify what luteal phase um, levels means. That means simply um, after ovulation, the progesterone rises to a critical level. So I just want to clarify what luteal phase means for our listeners. Yeah, so it's mimicking the menstrual cycle right. in the in the second half of the menstrual cycle after ovulation occurs. Yes, okay. Kyle, thank you. You're welcome. Um, can I, no, I don't think you have to go through recruitment. I think, but I want, just want to comment that I think it's fabulous that you had older women because I often have older women coming to see me and saying, "Is it too late to start transdermal hormones?" I think it's great that you included those. So I'm excited to hear now what happened in in part two of this. And, it, and I just want to comment as a woman in my 70s, thank you, because I don't intend to be running on empty for the next, tw- oh. the, the third act. I mean, I'd like to make it to be 100, but um, so so thank you for that. And I think that this choice study, I hope to impress upon all of you listening, this was an incredibly ambitious project on your part. Kenna, I'm, I applaud your bravery because you wanted to look at all of these different factors and you did, you did it. Three so carry ago. on, tell us more. Three years, three years well, ago. yes, because there was so much misinformation in the mainstream medical journals. There was, uh, they were filled with mistruths uh, about hormone therapy in women and perimenopause and menopause. And, and so we wanted to look at, at a diverse set of biomarkers, and we did this with incredible rigor. Now, we were not allowed to do a placebo arm. We were not allowed to do a placebo crossover study. The Human Subjects Committee had been spooked because of the Women's Health Initiative. And anytime you do clinical research in, in the United States, there is an independent committee that monitors your research and approves of the research and approves of the consent form and how the patients are going to be treated. And this is, uh, unfortunately, this relates to abuse by physician researchers in the past, abuse of patients. And I'll have to say, Dr. Golzier was guilty of that 
Um, you can go to Texas Monthly and you can read about what he did in the 1970s with women uh, in one of his studies. So because of that, we have to get approval. They did not want placebo. They uh, agreed that it could be a closed label study. So I had two groups. I had the intervention group. They knew they were getting hormones. They did not. They did not know what was in their compound. They were blinded to that, but they knew they were receiving a hormone. So they didn't know if it was progesterone, progesterone plus bias, progesterone plus bias plus testosterone. They just knew they were receiving a hormone compound that was plant-derived. And they got three syringes, uh, each lasting 10 days uh, for, for the study. And we had two compounding pharmacists with 503B pharmacies that were certified. Uh, they used the same base. They used the same formulas. Uh, like I said, there was incredible rigor in this study. Um, and then our, uh, our control group were age-matched women receiving the standard of care. So what's the standard of care okay. usually for a perimenopausal woman is to give her oral contraceptives, give her birth control pills from her 40s to her 50s. And then after she's 50, give her Primrin or, or Primpro. So that's what the, the control group was receiving. They were receiving the standard of care. Quick question there. So women who were as old as 70, did they actually put on those medications at that time? Yes, in both groups. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, um, so I, I did get approval from the Human Subjects Committee with, with those conditions. So next was recruitment. We went into the community. We asked women to be in the study. Now, this was after the scare of the WHI. And so a lot of their husbands, their, their sons, their daughters, Mama, I don't want you to do that. Mama, I saw on the news, I saw in Newsweek, I read in the Wall Street Journal, hormones are bad. And hormones cause dementia and hormones cause cancer. Yeah. So we had to, you know, overcome that. We, we did community seminars uh, to recruit. There was never sufficient parking. And my daughters, I want to say their names, uh, Caitlin Rose and Brenna Ann, they had parking cones. And they would go out into the parking lots and they would save spaces and get the women to come inside. <laughs> I mean, th that was a big part. I mean, that's part of the activism. Yeah. So, so many pieces to this. Cindy Burson would, would uh, bring organic snacks to the recruitment because these women had worked all day. Then they got to fight for a parking space to get in there, you know, to hear about the research study that their husband does not want them to be in. Mm -hmm. And so Cindy Burson pro provided organic homemade snacks, which we served. And um, so we had, we had 300 women give consent, 300 women in, in three weeks to be in the study. And 75 women met criteria because remember all these factors that we're measuring. So these women could not be on a statin. They could not be on an antidepressant. They could not be on an anti-anxiety drug. They could not be on um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or an opioid. Uh, they could not be on diabetes drugs. Any of the seven drugs you mentioned that most women are prescribed after in, in perimenopause. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I applaud you for finding 75 women that met that criteria. I know. 
Well, we had to recruit 300 to find the 75. So anyway, uh, so they, they met the criteria and, um, and came into the study. And um, we, we published papers throughout the three years. Uh, many were presented at American Heart Association scientific sessions. And uh, at one meeting, um, you know, to, to get to present at scientific sessions, there's, there's maybe, um, oh, let's say 10,000 papers submitted. Out of those 10,000, 3,000 are chosen. And out of those 3,000, 32 are chosen for a media press release. Okay. And we were elated at one of the scientific sessions when we were chosen for a media press release. Mm. And so we got to, to share our message with a, with a greater audience about what we were finding with the hormone restoration model of care, what we were finding with transdermal hormones and their effects on blood pressure, their effects on cholesterol, on triglycerides, um, on mood of depression and anxiety. And so this was, this was very, very exciting to us. I also want to say that when you do a clinical research study and it's three years long and you're looking at the sandwich generation, these are women that um, they're, they're caregivers for their, their parents or their in-laws or their older siblings. They may also be transitioning in, in work roles, or they may have uh, older kids in the home or maybe raising grandkids. I mean, these, these women had a, a lot of demands on their time. Um, when we looked at home strain and work strain, which are measures of stress in women at baseline, all of these women were super high. We, mm -hmm. we measured the Holmes raw stress scale. Um, and some of you may be familiar with this test. I, I think it's about 42 questions and you get so many points for answering yes to a question. So it mm -hmm. says, um, have you moved in the last year? Uh, have you, uh, experienced, uh, the death of a spouse, the death okay. of a child. The death of a child is like number one. It's the highest stressor. Um, a job change, marriage, divorce. Moving, uh, yeah. Yeah, moving. And so the, the average score, again, on these women was very, very high. Um, with that particular stress scale, it is a predictor of future health, okay? So a score, mm -hmm. a score less than 150 predicts over the next two years, they will have mild health problems. A score between 150 and 299 says they may have moderate stress-related health problems. And a score above 300 says they are highly, highly likely to have moderate to severe health problems. Um, the, the average score on all of our patients was well over 300, and it stayed over 300. Uh, some of these patients did face the death of a child, the death of a parent, the loss of property due to fire. Um, these patients went through many disasters. And on my YouTube channel, I have um, I have dedicated a video to them. And I think it's called uh, Overcoming Space Disasters and Hurricanes, the Real Heroes of the Choice Study. Because these women, we didn't have big pharma money, okay? We didn't have Pfizer giving these women mm -hmm. gas cards, giving them uh, coupons. No, they were paying their own gas money. Um, hallelujah, we had ZRT giving in-kind support. We also had private donations uh, from 
uh, many. We had help from the Progesterone Research Foundation and the International Academy of Compounding Pharmacists, but we were operating on a shoestring. And there was a, uh, there was a lot of hostility about me doing this study. Uh, there were colleagues that did not want me doing this type of research. They felt that it threatened their ability to get drug-funded studies. Mm -hmm. uh, also, during the time of this resource, uh, I'm sorry, this research, the administration where I was working decided to invoke a presidential fee on any donations going towards research. So when somebody donated um, money to help fund the choice study, there was a presidential fee of 20% that went to the president of my institution. Oh my God. Oh my God. I only got 80% of that donation. Then the clinical research center began charging me $50 every time a patient came into the clinical research center. So mm -hmm. they thought they could starve me out, but they couldn't, they couldn't. And the other thing that happened was, um, so we had the space disaster with the Columbia, uh, the, the Columbia um, disaster. Yes, space challenge. Exploding over where? East Texas. That's where my patients, many of my patients lived. They, oh couldn't, get to their, they couldn't get to their research appointments. Uh, there were, you know, of course, federal investigations and, and debris, and, and it, was, it was heartbreaking, but they stayed in the study. Then we faced Hurricane Katrina. Hurricane Katrina was in New Orleans, of course, but Texas was greatly impacted by Hurricane Katrina. Um, because of the storms, we lost power, and also many of us had friends and family in southern Louisiana coming up to stay in our homes and also giving shelter. Um, no, no gasoline at the pumps, no bread on the shelves, power outages throughout. Um, and yet the patients persisted. One of my patients had 17 people living in her house um, in the weeks after Hurricane Katrina, uh, yet they still attended their research visits. Um, in the last year... The stress level was pretty high, huh? <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, this is what I'm, I, I'm trying to illustrate here. And the, the other was Hurricane Ivan. Uh, some a lot of people know about Katrina because it was on the national news, but Hurricane Ivan is the seventh deadliest hurricane in history, and that also hit during the Choice Study. It hit Texas and Louisiana, and some of my patients lost homes, lost properties, lost loved ones, and still they stayed in the study. Some of my patients had to move out of state during the study, and they still attended their appointments. They found gas money or they found airfare. They found a way to come back and have their blood test and their uterus ultrasound so that we could measure the endometrial thickness. And we answered many questions, I think, in, this, in the three years. And I am forever indebted to all those that helped me. My, my PhDs, Dr. Pierre Neunschwander, Dr. Anna Kurdowska, um, and... <laughs> The patients themselves and their family members. I mean, thank you. Yeah. I, I was going to comment on, I hope people are understanding how absolutely 
devastatingly hard it is to to do an independent study without Pfizer and in the face of opposition from those who would be worried about their own opportunities with pharmaceutical companies, but then to have all that you're describing on top of it. And we all know how hard it is to get people to adhere to the guidelines of a study and to stay, stick with it. So it's like almost a miracle. It is a miracle. We should call it a miracle. I'll tell you, the other thing that happened in Ivan. Uh, some of the prison hospitals in South Texas had to be evacuated, and we received those prison populations at our institution. So yeah. suddenly, we had a lot more patients and a lot of sick patients at our facility. And for the patients in the study that had a uterus, they had to undergo uh, transvaginal a uterus ultrasound so that we could measure the endometrial thickness. Because again, another mistruth, another misconception is that the bioidentical hormones will cause endometrial hyperplasia and endometrial cancer, which they don't okay. yeah. if you use physiological doses, which we used. But we had to prove it. And some of those women, they came there on their lunch, lunch break. That You know, when you have a transvaginal ultrasound, you got to have a full bladder, don't you? So you got you got to drink that 32 ounces and you got to sit there with the full bladder and wait. And because we had uh, this influx of unanticipated patients, our ultrasound staff was really stretched and some of those women waited two two and a half hours to have their pelvic ultrasound. That's painful. I and they did it with grace. It must be a testament to how you presented this study to them, Tana, because obviously these women were bought into what you were doing. So something you did or, or the way you designed this study made them know that the work that they were doing was so important. That's all I can think. Yeah. I like your perspective, Kyle. I never really looked at it that way. I always had to look at it as an investigator. You know, I couldn't give buy-in. I couldn't give encouragement at their visits. I just had to ask. You know, we did the right, we used Brown University's Write Your Plate. We had to know what they were eating. We had to know about their exercise. We had to know about their pain scores. And all I was doing was I was adjusting their hormone doses as needed to meet that physiological target range. The power, the power of that was, I believe, with hormone balance in the face of this severe stress, and like we talked about, these independent measures of stress, in which they were all extremely high, mm -hmm. the hormone balance buffered the impact of that. Because when we look at outcomes of the three-year study in our group, in the, in the group getting the bioidentical hormones, getting the hormone restoration model of care, there were no adverse events, none. Even though they had the severe stress, which we know Im impacts all of these biomarkers, I believe the hormones modulated that and the patients were better able to cope. Uh, we, their mood scores improved, their depression, their anxiety, their lipids, their blood pressure, their pulse pressure, uh, immune signaling factors, their insulin glucose balance, all of that improved over the three years. In the standard of care group, the group getting oral contraceptives or Primarin or Primpro, there, there were adverse events. And in fact, there were five adverse cardiovascular events. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Did, were you able to capture, I know you did a lot of objective data gathering by doing questionnaires and measuring blood and doing ultrasounds. 
but were you able to capture sort of just um, for the fun of it, some of the comments one would make that we all hear in our practice, like I have my life back, I feel so much better. Was any of that ever captured in any way, shape or form? Yes, I share some comments from the first study in my book, Awakening Athena, if, if listeners are interested in, in those. And I have some in my YouTube videos. Of course, in our scientific publication, you would never share anything like sure. that. But I did have patients tell me, uh, one patient said, Dr. Stevenson, without these hormones, I would be dead, divorced, or both. That was probably, that was probably one of the strongest statements. Uh, many of them felt that the hormones uh, saved their lives, uh, helped them cope with these severe stressors that we're talking about. I think it's important to emphasize when you say there were no adverse events that's major um, in terms of what the medical society, medical community, stand, old school would have us believe. But the other fact being that there were actually significant improvements. Oh. And, and, you know, that, that, and you had, I mean, Kyle was asking you about what people said, but you had data the green climactic scale scores, the Hamilton anxiety scale, the Hamilton depression scale, you have actual data showing that women in perimenopause and menopause actually were, were um, you know, that you could make the statement that this kind of approach with transdermal physiologic based hormonal replacement or replenishment in the restorative model is actually safe and effective. Well, yeah, and it's all they need. They don't need statins, and they don't need oral hypoglycemic agents, and they don't. Uh, many don't need antidepressants and anxiolytics and sleep hypnotic agents. They just need hormone balance. They just need physiological doses of hormones. And I can tell you personally, and I'm not ashamed to say this to to our listeners, I have used this model of care when I was when I was in my late 30s. My progesterone level dropped, so it was like boom. Kenna, you need some progesterone support because there's no source in your diet that you're going to be able to replenish progesterone. There's nothing I can eat to get that progesterone back. There's no amount of yoga or swimming or meditation or anything I can do. <laughs> so I began progesterone supplementation in my late 30s. And then I tested every year, you know, to see what I needed and if I needed anything more. And so now, um, uh, many years later, I've used the hormone restoration model of care. And uh, I, I'm, I've also done research in aging. And I know we're not talking about that in this podcast, but um, in independent age analysis, my biological age, my biological age is two years older than my oldest daughter. <laughs> Ah, we want to do that test. Well, this the choice model of care. I mean, this is how you get there. It's almost reverse aging. And so um, I, am, I am many decades younger than my chronological age. And I believe it's, it's this model of care. And I, I thought it was interesting in the study, when you're looking at the actual study, that it does, you do make the point at the end that this model of care warrants consideration as an effective and safe clinical therapy. That's what women need to hear, especially in these populations with high perceived stress. 
And that's, you know, as you just, if you were to just deal with women that are in the sandwich generation, taking care of aging relatives and their kids, forget Katrina and all these other things. It's still, we're still talking about the, the, the amount of stress that women are notorious for having to deal with and taking care of everyone but themselves. Precisely. Um, and in the aging population, in the women 65 and up, the, uh, the balance of interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, and insulin-like growth factor 1, that is so, so important. Their IGF-1 and their IL-6, and those were modified and modulated using this hormone restoration model of care. I think a lot of those women have a false sense of security because their mammogram's okay and their colonoscopy is okay and um, their bone density, but they're not okay because their IL-6 and IGF levels are off. And so is their, their cortisol. I mean, we've yeah. got to look in the right places in, in women in those later decades to pre prepare them for an independent life going into their 80s, 90s, 100. I agree that we, we don't look at the inflammatory markers enough. And people will always say, you know, oh, my, my blood value is fine. Like what you said, mammogram is fine. But then they get cancer two years down the road. We're not looking at the whole person. We're not looking at their cortisol levels. We're not looking at the whole person, Hannah, and I totally agree with you at the holistic model of healthcare. It's so important. And so so many of the things we're talking about, too, if you're talking about inflammation, that, that insidious process that's going on in the body, there aren't necessarily any symptoms that anyone recognizes. For God's sake, it's it's still an educational challenge to help women become aware of the symptoms of hormonal imbalance. You, you know, to to try to educate people on what to look for when we've got a risk for cardiovascular disease or stroke, or we, we don't know what those symptoms are. They're silently gathering. And just because we get these, you know, the mammogram, et cetera, as Kenneth said, that's not good enough. And that's not women's health. And that's another one of my soapboxes. When they call me up and want me to talk about women's health, they want me to talk about pap smears and mammograms. And that's not it. Mm -hmm. One out of two women worldwide will suffer a disability or death from cardiovascular disease. Dementia is on the rise. Um, the roots of dementia are hormone imbalance in the perimenopausal transition. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, just... Looking to the future, I think it's it's very important that women in their 60s and 70s use this model of care. And yes, they can be prescribed transdermal bioidentical hormones in physiological doses. We proved that in the CHOICE study, and they should be. And to not give it to them, I think, is wrong. I agree. I, I totally agree with you. I had women coming to see me in their late 60s and 70s who hadn't been on hormones for a long time. We would always talk about, you know, some of the diminishing returns because they had been off them for so long, and it was obviously aging that had occurred since menopause, but we could certainly catch up on some things, and we always had that conversation, Kenna. I think that's an important conversation to have with women is that you're never too old to go on these, in my opinion. I hit menopause at 47. I'm 68. I've been on them for 21 years, and I think it makes all the difference in the world with energy. Like you said, you're aging. It's optimal aging is what it, it comes down to. Well, and you know, yes. And when you're when you're in the field as I am, as just an educator, and you're talking to women, and you realize there's still so much 
lack of understanding about the difference between these synthetic hormones and the bioidenticals. And when you're trying to explain to people how they work and how much better they are, it is such a comfort to have something like the choice study to have our backs. You know, we've got this science on our side, thanks to you. And, uh, you know, and there aren't that many intrepid researchers out there as you. There are, there's a handful of independent studies in this country. There are better studies in the European framework, but we still struggle because we're up against big pharma. So when you talk about a study like Choice, it is a landmark piece of research just for all, if, for so many reasons. Yeah. Yes, and, and I think, I mean, I, I, I believe, Candace, on your website or... Um, I'm, I'm happy to share this study. I'm happy to share it for educational purposes and for women to print it out and take it with them to their next appointment and show the doctor what we measured on their endometrial stripe of the uterus and show the doctor what we saw on lipid profiles and on depression, anxiety scores in women that were uh, above the age of 65. And insist on insist on bioidentical hormones if testing shows the need and educate your doctors. And, you know, that's part of the whole that that is the activism that we have. We're talking about Heart Health Month this this February and how many women think that breast cancer is the major killer of women, but it's really cardiovascular disease. And so so much of what you're discussing now is key to that prevention of that, that, that number one life-threatening disease that women deal with. I do yeah, and I, do, I just want to interject too with one, one reason my bias is towards transdermal delivery is, is also because of heart and lung disease. A lot of my training was done in hospitals with patients with severe heart and lung uh, problems and comorbidities. Yet these women go through menopause too. And these women have low hormone levels too, and they need help. Yeah. And so in women, uh, even in women with, uh, with pulmonary disease, such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease with adult onset asthma, with chronic bronchiectasis, women with atrial fibrillation, with um, congestive heart failure, you can safely, and I've done it and I still do it every day, you can safely prescribe transdermal hormones, even in women with prothrombotic genetic variants. Right. You can give them transdermal hormones. Even women who have had a history of strokes, too. Yeah. So Getting back to giving women the um, armament, and I think it's a great idea of having the choice study in their hand. But I just want to remind everybody, and we, you all know this, it's not easy to find a provider that's going to change their minds. You know what I mean? It's great to have this information, but I do want to encourage women to talk to their local compounding pharmacists, you know, a lab like ZRT, find providers out there that may already be doing this kind of work. As you know, Candace, as you know, and I know, it's hard to find people that pivot on this kind of topic. Let me just say the ZRT website has a physician referral finder. If you put your zip code in, you can find someone that at least works with, with right. hormone testing and is generally trained and savvy. There's also the international... I mean, the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM.org, also has a physician referral. 
or provider referral let's talk about too provider referral yes and and if i want to say one more thing about compounding pharmacists um, that can also be a resource for patients and so they can go to our website p c C-A. Um, that is a resource uh, in, in U.S., Canada, I think also Australia and New Zealand to find a compounding pharmacist that has proficiency in the bioidentical hormones. I want to say that another, another mistruth uh, that's out there by the establishment about the use of compounded hormones in women is that, well, you don't really know what they're getting. Mm. And, you know, th there's so many impurities in, in those compounds. So we wanted to answer that back too. And I was really rigorous about this and pretty harsh about it. And so we randomly took samples from the compounds that had been uh, prepared and given to the patients. We had the patient bring us a syringe with at least a mill of their compound left in that syringe and we sent it to an independent analytical lab, not associated with the pharmacist, an independent analytical lab called Eagle Analytical in Houston, Texas. And again, they offered in-kind support. And you talk about miracles, Candace. Yes, this was another miracle. These, these were high-dollar tests, but they offered in-kind support in, uh, for this research study. And they looked at these specimens for purity, and for potency and for contaminants. Mm -hmm. And we we never had a fail. We never had a fail in the three years. Mm -hmm. And I know the lab, the pharmacy that I work with has so many quality test, you know, quality uh, testing that they do over and over again. They have multiple ways. So when people say that you're not getting the same thing over and over again, they have reproducible results, like you're saying. So I think that's really important to emphasize. I mean, there's so much pushback from the pharmaceutical company that said, oh, this stuff is not what you're getting, but it is. I think the co compounding pharmacies are, most of them, scrupulous in, in their attention to detail and having clean rooms and mm -hmm. being, you know, just highly principled. They have to be. They have to be. They have to they be under scrutiny. Um, so, Candace, I mean, I'm sorry, Ken, I'm moving forward. Do you see that there's been a shift in our country and in the world towards this, or are we still seeing more pushback than we would like to see in terms of bioidentical transdermal prescriptions? Well, I, I'm glad you asked that, Kyle, because I just reviewed a paper uh, that's going to press. And in this paper, they say there were about 25 million prescriptions for compounded bioidentical hormones last year in the United States. So to me, uh, we're on the increase in the last two decades. Uh, we know that before the Women's Health Initiative in the United States, there were about 100 million prescriptions for Primarin and PrimPro. Ooh, and that after the Women's Health Initiative, of that dropped off. And so I, I think it's on the rise. And I, I think that women themselves are the mightiest force in creating this change. I think the medical establishment is going to be a little slow about it, uh, even though I've empowered all of them with some really hard science as it relates to the safety and efficacy yes. of the model of care. Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's fabulous that you 
there isn't a great force for women, Kenna. We need more. Well, women. they're a force for me. They're 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 the wind beneath my wings. I, I was I was just privileged to to get to be a part of it. I love. I have a, a funny quote that I was looking at quotes for today's um, podcast, and one of the ones I this reminds me of you, Kenna. It's by Dolly Parton. And she said, um, the way I see it, if you want the rainbow, you got to put up with the rain. And I think that <laughs> pretty much says it all. You know, everybody who fights this fight knows, we all know that we want the outcome of a great health model for women. And we had a fight against the traditional forces and it's hard. It's, it's, it's well, hard. I'm telling you, when that, when that hurricane hit, I was in tears driving to the hospital. I was in tears. I, I really, my gas tank was on empty. Um, I couldn't make sandwiches for the people in my house because we're out of bread and there's no bread at the store. And, um, but I drew strength from the patients that showed up for their appointments that day. Mm -hmm. I mean, when one of them had 17 people in her house and I only had about five, you know, it was wow. like, okay, no more tears. You can do this, Kenna. No, yeah important work that you've done, Kenna. And I, you know, I would love to almost see that, that study be published again in some sort of a women's magazine. Where's Oprah when we need her, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I had patients in the study that sent this to her. Um, they, they, sent, they sent our findings to Oprah. They sent them to Women's Health Magazine, to, um, you know, mainstream media outlets. Uh, but they just didn't pick it up. I mean, it, it is, it is going against the grain. It, but 25 million prescriptions for bioidenticals is a, is a significant percentage now. That, that tells us that the message is getting through. Maybe sending our pot, maybe we'll, let's send our podcast to Michelle Obama and, about that, and Oprah and a podcast in your, you know, hearing you speak is so powerful, probably much more powerful than just sending a study along. So, and then also the practitioners out there that, that, well, as you said, you've given them this. It's a gift. It it gives it. You have their back. They can go ahead and do this and know that they're doing the right thing and that they're doing something that's going to be safe. And if and these yes. people, these doctors, they, they can be, want to help their patients. Right. They can be confident in this model of care. That's what I want them to know. They can be confident yes. in this model of care, and um, I want to say that on my YouTube channel, Dr. Kenna. I do have a, a picture of some of the participants in the CHOICE study. And the reason we called it the CHOICE study is because we believe women should have a choice mm -hmm. about what they do in their perimenopausal and menopausal years as it relates to hormone balance. And uh, so, the, like I said, the, the heroines of this study, uh, they did, some of them did agree to a photo and, and that's on my YouTube channel. And I, I would love for all your listeners to, to take a look and get, give them some love in the comment section. Well, do. And I'd also like to put a plug in for, you know, one of our, we were talking about the laboratory we've all been affiliated with over time with Dr. Zava and the VRT laboratory. There's tons of webinars that are um, geared towards the patient. And I think the more that women are empowered and learn about this, then they do, they can make the choice to go to a doctor that will provided that will listen to them and maybe change how they approach this or find a provider that listens to them anyway. Um, you know, it's just, we have to, we have to do the work. We, one of the things we say in our podcast, if you want a great life, you have to ask great questions and you have to persevere. You just have to. 
find the care you need. And we do. It's we're we're propelled by the you know by our patients and by the people that we know have had their lives changed by this. Women can they're they're missing out as you've said, Kenna, and they can feel better. I think women forget how much better they could feel or how much better they used to feel or you know it just get into this place where you don't recognize and you don't advocate for yourself. But I hope that this conversation has been empowering and inspiring. I, I think of Kenna as Athena leading the way. Yes, leading the charge. <laughs> leading the charge. Kenna, thank you so much for spending this time with us again. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with women before we close today? Well, it's, it's been my pleasure. And I hope to see everybody on YouTube. Uh, get the word out with the choice study. I think Candace and Kyle are going to make this available for you to share with your healthcare provider, connect with your pharmacies and love, love yourselves, love yourselves enough to enter the battle for hormone balance for your future health. Beautiful. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, ladies. It's been a pleasure having both of you here in the Zoom call. Looking forward to a, a, a year of hormone balance. And and happiness. Many thousand thanks, Kenna. We'll have to con we'll have to say to be continued. <laughs> yes, you have so much to tell us. Oh, Kenna, before we go, just tell us briefly, what do you have on your horizon? Oh, thanks for asking, Kyle. I've got a couple of dream workshops coming up. I believe that dreams are an untapped resource, and they can help us heal, transform, and bring knowledge and guidance to our lives. And they're free, freely available to all. So I'm doing a couple of dream workshops. I have a chapter devoted to dreams in my book, Awakening Athena. Right. Also with Team 5, um, the medical director of Team 5 Foundation, it's, it, we've got a really fun website. And we do medical, dental, and canine missions in austere, remote parts of the world. We're headed to Nepal in March and to Peru in May. Woo! Kenna, you right. are, of course, I mean, keeping up with you is hard, girl, but it's great. <laughs> women's medicine, women's progression, we're, make, we're on the move. Woo-woo. Love it. Well, Kenna, we're going to have to have you come back after you go to, uh, your, to Peru and let us know what great work you're doing down there. It is a privilege to talk to you and to have you share your thoughts and your knowledge and all that you're doing in the world. It it really it, you are the lesson and you're an inspiration and and man, we got to all keep it up, keep going. Thank you so much again. Thank you, Kenna. Be well. All right. Talk to you later. Bye bye. Bye. Well, here we are at the end of this WTF. Women Talking Frankly podcast episode. In signing off, we want you to remember that what you are feeling is not all in your head. And that you have so many options to choose from to get you back to balanced living. Until next time, be well. And remember, if you want a great life, you need to ask great questions. Be courageous. Ask for what you need. With love, Kyle and Candace. Our website is womentalkingfrankly.com, where you can find all of our episodes, check out the show notes for resources, articles, and remedies, and where you can also feel free to email us with any questions, a hormone story, anything you'd like us to share with our listeners. 
Women Talking Frankly, WTF, is produced by Dan Rigger of Medicine Whistle Studios in his lovely Southeast Portland, Oregon studio. We want to thank our webmaster and dear friend, Deb Hollister of Pure and Simple Graphic Design. We also want to give a shout out to all of our family, friends, and patients for all of their support and encouragement to start this podcast. We are your hosts, Kyle McAvoy and Candace Birch.